Hey, this is Lydia. I just want to say thank you for tuning in to season five. This is the beginning of season five. We have a lot of really spectacular interviews and maybe like whole story segments planned for this year. So please stay tuned for that. And if there's something that you would love to hear on the podcast, we would, we need to know about it. You have to tell us. So you can always email us and you can always get in touch with us on Facebook or you can shoot us a DM on Twitter. We're at RTL pod or on Facebook. We also have a spectacular Facebook group that um, sparks some really cool dialogue there. And that's called the people who listen. So be sure to seek us out there and check out our website, recordtechlisten.com. And before I forget, subscribe to the podcast. So whenever there's a new episode, it shows up automatically. I have a real treat for you today. We have the one, the only Dr. Johnny O. So enjoy. Johnny O, you are back in the first podcast of 2019. I'm back. Thanks for having me. Always. And you've got some pretty interesting topics as you know, as you normally do. You come prepared and enlighten the masses. So I hope. I yeah. hope. Yeah, I think uh, the start of the new year is a great time to start talking about our political system. Yeah. Particularly uh, from a two sort of broad perspectives. Uh, democracy. Sure sort of the fundamental principles we say that we believe in, that we use to guide our government practices. And what may not seem apparent at first, but is really a related issue, education. Yes. Education is essential to a functioning democracy. Absolutely, because if you don't know what a democracy is, what right. good is it to you? Exactly. And the idea of um, participating, to me, has always implied that you had some fundamental knowledge base. Mm -hmm. I mean, how can you participate if you're not aware? Right. And I'm not the only one. Thomas Jefferson suggested that a well-informed electorate is a prerequisite to democracy. Well, I don't always agree with what Jefferson did. I'm okay with standing <laughs> next to him on this one. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, he was human. He was indeed, know, so. yes. So I thought this would be a, kind of a no-brainer when I started uh, preparing for it, thinking, okay, um, education, as Jefferson said, is a prerequisite, right? Yes. Well, then I started looking into it, and I got myself a little confused and realized <laughs> it's going to be a little more complex topic than I thought. I went back to another uh, well-known commentator on U.S. politics, Alexis de Tocqueville, um, he came here in the early 19th century, and it's actually sent here because as an observer, to see how the U.S. conducted its political system, um, get some insights for France. Okay. So he observed and is quoted as reporting that the U.S. has a well-developed sense of community and individual responsibility to support community efforts. You're like, okay, hmm. now that's interesting. Let's throw that into the mix, education, uh, individual responsibility, but a sense of community. We'll get back to how community relates to education. So just bear with me as I weave this. Sure, uh, sure. Today, a lot of observers suggest that uh, the sense of community is not as strong in contemporary U.S. society as it was when de Tocqueville was here. Um, but still, survey after survey indicates that most Americans, a majority or better, believe that they ought to be involved in at least local affairs mm -hmm. and they ought to help out when they can. I think that that's true. I think a perfect example of that would, would be an event that happened a few weeks ago in Frostburg. There was a three-alarm fire. Right. People lost their business and places to live. Exactly. And the community in Frostburg and surrounding areas really rallied together. Absolutely. To house these people, clothe the people. Fundraisers. Fundraisers. Donations. Also, Just you know. Just charitable acts as yeah, well. Yeah, feeding the firemen right. and all that. I yeah. mean, like, so that, and to that, I agree. I think probably right. on a local level, because it's where you live, and that's where you're going to exactly. see probably the most change rapidly. Right. Yes, you could probably have the most direct impact that you can observe. Sure. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, though, when you go, we, you bring up a very interesting point about participation. We, the, the surveys say we, we believe we ought to, 
We don't always, though. If you continue right. with it and you ask them, well, what have you done? Mm-hmm. Uh, not quite so many follow up with I have as indicated I should. Right. And the thing, the three alarm fire is a very interesting point because does it take a crisis to rally us around? You're right. It has to be like a major tragic natural disaster or other event to like trigger that switch to say, oh, I I need to do something versus that switch being on all the time. Exactly. And I wonder if this is what the difference is between um, the Tocqueville's sense of community and what observers are reporting today that exists in the United States? Was it always the crisis mentality we respond to, or was it more commonplace back then? When was he here? He was in the 19th century? Early 19th century, Okay, yeah. 1800s, okay. yeah. Yeah. So he did do some what was frontier visits at the time, um, so that would definitely have been populated with a more community-oriented spirit because okay. that was an essential survival. Absolutely. You had to be in a community. Exactly. If, if you're really super far out, then they right. couldn't guarantee your safety yeah exactly and really super far out could have only been as far as like what we would consider now kansas or right exactly (laughs) but so we see a different dynamic being introduced here what makes a democracy work the Tocqueville looks at uh, a cultural aspect uh, and i think the cultural aspect ties back to education as well um let's throw in another part of the Tocqueville's observation the strong sense of individualism played a significant role, whether that was based on individual responsibility, people felt they had the obligation to participate in some fashion, Mm -hmm. or the more commonplace approach that we we, we talk about is that I'm responsible for myself. Right. So it could be like a peer pressure situation, or then you can say like, well, I'm a lone wolf here. Right. Yeah. It's an interesting dynamic when you look at the Tocqueville, this strong sense of community spirit juxtaposed to this individualism. And that carries on in the whole supposed American dream, right? Like right. you can come exactly. here, you can do, right. if you work hard, it's not like if we work hard, uh-huh. it's a you right. statement. Anybody can be president. But let's throw something else in that's important to our political culture. Mm-hmm. It also affects our approach to education. And that's the type of capitalist economy that we have developed. Um, A lot of politicians today, particularly on the right, are um, deriding the idea of a socialist economy Mm -hmm. or a social market economy. Anything with the word socialist in it is sort of anathema in conservative political ideology mm-hmm. in the 21st century in the United States. It makes everybody clinch up a little bit on the it right. It does. Yeah. And part of that, I believe, is a lack of understanding. To lack of education. To lack of education. What uh, socialism actually means and its role in a political economy. But we could talk about that, again, perhaps another podcast. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So here's what I see today. We add uh, all of these cultural elements that the Tocqueville and others have talked about, and we have a large number of young people arguing that they do they have the right to not participate. Yeah, I remember you talking about that. Yes. Yeah. Very interesting phenomenon. I've surveyed students, and I've had colleagues survey students, and I finally found some research preliminary research supporting that, that yes it suggests that hmm. the heuristic evidence i get from unscientific conversations with people is not unique okay to my circumstances so it's not just happening right. in your classroom it's happening and this in is other a places. very odd phenomenon yeah and but it's something that we have to incorporate why do you feel you have the right not to participate i mean we talked previously i don't ever remember marching for your right not to participate Right. Usually it's the opposite. Right. You want to participate. Exactly. Yeah, and there's a barrier. But here's why I bring this in. I looked at this from the perspective of, oh, yeah, okay, there's the decline of democracy in America. Right. Well, I found a handful of political scientists, uh, just through a quick search, who indicated that they thought this was a virtue, that limited political participation was an essential component in U.S. democratic success. Huh. The argument running to, to sort of make a composite argument of a bunch of different ones. Sure. Um, 
we belong to different types of groups mm-hmm. as individuals. Sure. I'm in many different groups that have competing are they competing for my attention and my time. Mm-hmm. Um, by being in this cross-cutting section of groups or intersecting groups, um, I become less vociferous for anyone, less strident, mm-hmm. and therefore I mute my demands on society and the government. Right. Okay. So I teach. Yeah. Okay, I pay taxes. Mm-hmm. I want a higher salary, but I don't want to pay higher taxes. Right. That sort of argument. Mm-hmm. Okay. I drive a car. I want people to have car insurance, but I don't want to pay so much for my car insurance. Right. Exactly. So I these competing influences, and this is you know a long-standing trend. I just have never heard it articulated quite so blatantly. Sure. That limited participation is a good thing. I'm not sure I actually agree with this, but... But it's an interesting uh, line of thinking, at least recognizing that it's happening is right. a good thing and, and something that we should be aware of exactly. maybe moving forward to see exactly how this pans out, right. a non-participatory... And where are these people getting this idea? Is this a spontaneous yeah. germination or is this a cultural phenomenon? Is it like an act of rebellion almost? I feel it like it could very well be an act you know, of rebellion because that's sort of like, well, you should vote. Well, I'm just not going to. That could very well be clean your room. No. Yeah. Vote. No. Yeah. Exactly. That could very well be. Um, a lot of the ideas we get about culture and counterculture are transmitted through education. Mm. So we get back to the idea of education again. Right. Um, I just find it an interesting phenomenon. And it got me thinking about, okay, what what is the purpose of government? What should our society, our political society, be doing? Mm-hmm. Um, do we encourage people not to participate? Or are we in, should we be encouraging people to participate? Well, I think a, a really good real-time point of this is when the Democrats the Democratic House majority wanted to have Election Day be a national holiday. Right. And then Mitch McConnell in the Senate said, this is a power grab. Exactly. And that's like, wait a minute. So we all know that it's it's no secret that with gerrymandering and all that other kind of stuff that it makes it very difficult, like voting laws, makes it very difficult for people who work full-time jobs and, and usually are minorities. Or multiple jobs. Or multiple jobs. To be able to get access to vote. Raising families, either individually or in a couple. Yeah. Child care, child responsibility, just time commitment takes so much. And so so they're saying like all that. And he was saying, nope, because that limits the participation. Well, clearly this seems to reflect, without knowing what's going on in his mind, Mm -hmm. this idea that limited participation is actually a virtue Mm -hmm. rather than a, a detriment or a sign of decline. Right. You see others, uh, particularly on the other side of the aisle, who su- suggest that it is something that needs to be combated at least. Mm-hmm. If they, I don't know if they'd go as far as to say decline in democracy, but well, something I mean, it's that definitely needs to be addressed. Can, right. It's a, it's a pattern that should probably. It's a re- pattern of repression in some way right. that you know needs to be addressed. And this is clearly something that is part of the government's job. What should the government be doing? Right. That's how we approach this. Mm-hmm. So I asked myself, what should the government be doing? Yeah. And I came up with uh, this woman, Martha Nussbaum. She wrote an interesting article called Creating Capabilities, a Human Development Approach. And I like it. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I want to frame what should government be doing? What is the government's job? So according to this capabilities approach, to sort of boil it down, the government's job is to create an environment in which people can develop. Right. It's that. End of. Can develop. What does that mean? Okay, well, that depends on your community. What is your social, cultural environment? Mm-hmm. Is it um, be all that you can be, sort of the individualistic approach? Sure. Or is it be a contributing member of the community? Mm-hmm. I like this approach because it seems that it can fit in a society or a culture that 
tends more towards the individualistic side of the cultural spectrum uh, or one that tends towards the more community-oriented side of the spectrum. It, it's a really nice umbrella. And I love when political scientists do things like that, mm-hmm. where they create a, a framework of understanding that encompasses a broad array of different types of social, cultural, political arrangements. Yeah. It makes it so much nicer and easier to compare. Yeah. And by training, I'm a comparative political scientist. Sure, so sure. I like really dig when people do this stuff. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you're making my job easy. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So we go back to create an environment in which people can develop. All right. That's a great idea. It fits mm-hmm. in here, fits in there, fits in everywhere. What does that mean? So I turn to a couple other authors, uh, Draper and Ramsey, and they say, in a good society, one that allows you the capabilities to develop, you know, the capabilities approach, there are four things we need to meet. Okay. okay. A good society, in a good society, people are, are able to meet their physical needs. Okay. So like housing and Yeah, pretty food straightforward. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Simple, basic. Mm-hmm. Think back to like... Maslow's hierarchy of needs type stuff. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing, which is the point we're going to focus on, is make informed decisions. Yeah. The third (laughs) is live in safety. Again, Mm -hmm. it seems pretty straightforward. If you're worried about violence against you or your person or your possessions or your family or whatever, that's sort of distracting. That's not a good life. It's pretty stressful. And then they introduce in this view of Nussbaum's, um, their fourth point is exercise democratic rights. And that, in my opinion, indicates a particular bias. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't really bother me with respect to this conversation because we are talking about democracy. Democracy, right. So So that fits in nicely. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It does work out nicely for us today. So informed decision-making is the part that links us back to education. And these guys say, okay, informed decision-making, and then they throw out a quick liner, like, knowledge is power. Right. Okay, great. Knowledge is power. Great poster. Right. Yeah. Wonderful for a bumper sticker. Mm -hmm. Easy, quick, and actually conveys a lot if you think about it. Mm -hmm. To me and to others, this implies the ability to make decisions that improves one's quality of life. Knowledge is power. Yeah, right. Okay? Exactly. Yeah. Improves one's quality of life. And this depends on access to information mm-hmm. and the skills to understand that information. So it's not just information, but it's the skills that allow you to do something with it. Yeah, because we are bombarded Exactly. With information. The U.S. in particular, the computer-based society, is an information-rich yes. environment. Uh, overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So having the skills to make decisions about what's appropriate, what's not. And I don't mean appropriate in any moralistic sense. No, just I like... I mean in terms yeah. of how is this something useful in this particular context that I should be looking at mm-hmm. or should I move on? Right. Should and I that, go down this rabbit hole... Or not. Right. <laughs> is this, is this uh, valid, right. valuable in terms of this conversation, this context? Mm-hmm. And this is where we get back to education. Yeah. This is what education, in my opinion, should be doing. Yeah. So we get back to Thomas Jefferson. Democracy requires a well-informed population because people can only make choices if they have access to accurate information concerning society. Now, here's something that people may not agree with me on. Mm-hmm. And government has a special duty to collect that information because, let's remember, in the United States, the media news mm-hmm. is a business, first and foremost. So, like all businesses, their first priority is make money. money. Yeah, money. Okay, mm-hmm. now, you can couple that first priority with a desire to adequately inform the population, but you don't have to. Right. And any one of us can think in our head of a media outlet that we would say that is all about the money and not about providing for a well-informed population. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That gets me back to the government has that special duty. Mm Mm-hmm. 
if the government is going to create an environment where people can develop and part of that development is dependent on a well-informed society, the ability mm-hmm. to make informed decisions, Yeah, government steps in. That's their role. We also need to ensure that it's not just providing information. It's providing the skills, the training, the education mm-hmm. to assess that information. Right. Because we all know... Hard as it is to believe, governments have lied to their population in the past. Oh, Mm -hmm. the humanity. I know, right? (laughs) So, effectively, the government becomes an information source and its own watchdog Mm -hmm. through the process of creating the watchdogs, which would be us. Yes. And would you say in some regard the media as well? Even though they are money-making... thing right they're a money-making operation right but a most reputable news uh-huh. sources would say that they are you know providing a service to be sure. a, a counterbalance to what's being fed to from the maybe coming from Absolutely. the government or somebody else so but then you get in the the argument of um perspective yeah. which perspective who is doing the feeding and who is providing the legitimate information right so uh, media can can certainly be a valuable source of information, mm-hmm. whether it is or does provide is a question that needs to be continuously asked. Right, right. Um, they have some wonderful infographics out there in this year, this uh, era of uh, quote unquote fake news, mm-hmm. which I believe I've mentioned in the past. I hate that yes. term. Yeah, it's not misinformation, yeah. lies mm-hmm. are both much more appropriate terms. Yes, yes. And I look at those that fall in the center, reputable sources, and I can think of a handful of instances over my lifetime where even the reputable sources. We're feeding a line to mm-hmm. the population. Sure. Because it would sell, well, papers. I'm very old, newspapers. Yeah. Now blogs or videos or whatever. Sure, okay. sure. Uh, they have, I'll be kind to them. The media has to do a, uh, perform a balancing act. Mm-hmm. Make money so they stay in business. Yes. Provide information. Right. Okay. Um, Library of Congress government information source yes doesn't really have to do that balancing act no it doesn't because so. well when it's open it's funded right <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly so democracy requires a well-informed population that gives a special role to the government right? and again i'm not the only one who thinks that way right historically we have provided for federal funding for education, mm-hmm. a public education system. Yes. So somewhere along the way, society writ large uh, agrees with me, mm-hmm. or I'm simply restating sort of an accepted principle of the U.S. society. Sure. So as much as it sounds like uh, I'm a little bit loony here, like, whoa, whoa, put the government in charge. Uh, let's step back a second here. Yeah. Public education is public funding for exactly the type of tasks that we're looking for here. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Now, if we're not really interested in democratic participation, according to the O'Rourke Jefferson model, <laughs> I might give Tom like top billing the next time. Maybe. Around. I Jefferson mean, O'Rourke. But you're still, you're here. So. That's true. <laughs> yeah. People can argue with me. They can't argue with him. That wouldn't be fair. That's not fair. I mean, they could, but they would only be one-sided. So. Right. So in order to uh, promote this type of democracy, mm-hmm. we need participation. Yeah. Participation needs to be informed. Otherwise, chaos. Yeah. You get a lot of weird things happening. Yeah. And we've seen this historically around the globe. Yeah. Where lack of information and participation has led to outcomes that Are history has judged, yes, yeah. less than desirable. Yes, absolutely. So um, I guess the question for us now is, 
are we doing a good job in the United States at providing the educational facilities, information, uh, skill set that we should be? Yeah, I don't, I don't, that's a, I don't know. That's tough to determine. That's an ongoing. It's an ongoing. It's an ongoing question. I, you know, I would say no, just to make a good informed decision. If you, ha- in order to be able to make an informed decision, you have to um, be in debt for your entire life to access <laughs> that information. Well, there, that's a perfect point. Yeah. If this is a public good, right? To throw in another term here. Um, something that is provided to individuals yeah. or groups that by its nature makes it difficult to sell mm-hmm. because of its mm, characteristics. Sure. Um, for example, if I consume an education, does that mean there's none left for you? Yeah. Okay. So if right. I go to a hamburger joint and buy a hamburger, you can't buy that hamburger. Right. So it's mine exclusively. Well, it's an equality thing. Right. Yeah. Education is not exclusive. Right. Unless you put a price tag on it and then, and then it, becomes, it exclusive. becomes exclusive. Like I'm a Harvard graduate yeah. or I went to Yale Law School. Right. Yeah. And the other thing about public good in not the technical sense, but in the sense of um, generating good for the public. Mm-hmm. Education is not just about how smart you are or how informed or how skillful. It's about your ability to contribute to society. Right. Can you be a legitimate representative of me? Will you do a good job if I vote for you for mayor, county commissioner, uh, representative to the House, senator, president? Mm-hmm. Right. So the the benefits... Uh, accrue not only to the individual, but to the community, to society as well. Mm-hmm. And thus, that also brings us back to the communal obligation, in this case, government-sponsored. Sure. So, um, let's take a look, simply, at whether we're doing a good job. Yeah. Now, this is a real long conversation, so mm-hmm. I'm going to keep it limited to just a few points. You did the highlights. Just the highlights, yes. <laughs> the first thing I'm going to do is focus your attention on um, providers of education. Mm-hmm. Teachers. Okay. Uh, I found some interesting information about teacher salary uh, through for K through 12. Okay. The preparatory years. Sure. Which is mandatory for students... To go on to secondary education. In the United States. Yeah. Oh, it's also required by law. Yeah. You go at least until you're 16 in most mm-hmm. states. Right. So pretty much this is uh, reaching large portions of society. Yes. So if we're doing a good job, it should show up here. Mm. All right. So it's teacher salaries is not a direct measure of how good a job we're doing. Right. But it's an interesting surrogate because... Many countries pay their teachers like they're rock stars. Yes. Not quite that much, but, but you I mean, get the like meaning. they're valued. Valued. Yes. Highly valued. Yeah. Competent, trusted members of society. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a real choice. Do I become a teacher mm-hmm. or something else? Right. In the United States, let's see, the last statistics I found were from 2015, public school teachers... Weekly wages were 70, 17% lower than those of comparable workers, given the skill set required, the education and training sure. required, compared with just 1.8% lower in 1994. Really? So 20 years difference. This is according to the Economic Policy Institute report from 2016 by Allegretto and Lawrence. Okay. So you got, throw a little plug in there for sure, the sure. people who actually did the work for yeah. it. I just downloaded them mm-hmm. 1.8% difference that's okay I could live with that oh you make 1.8% more than me mm, I'm a little jealous but I can survive yeah well you don't have like a classroom full of kids all day long either right. so I mean well, but <laughs> bumped it up to 17 yeah and that's a significant difference yeah absolutely now does that mean we're not getting good teachers I'm not going to go that far Mm. That's something different. People go into teaching because it's a passion. 
rather than for the money. Mm-hmm. And they know they're not going into it for the money. Right. They know they can get better salaries elsewhere. But a common argument about why certain professions get paid so much is that's what attracts the best and the brightest. Mm. Now, if we can use that in other fields, I don't see any reason why we can't use it in in the education field as well. Absolutely, yeah. It should be a competitive marketplace. Right. You choose, don't go into teaching just because you have the passion. Be rewarded for that passion. Yeah, I mean, that's like, passions are good for like hobbies like i have passions for knitting you know but you know if i'm working i would you expect to be compensated for exactly you know your years of education and your continuing education and everything else and as you mentioned earlier go into education spend the next what was 30 years paying Paying off off. right exactly and that's going to be maybe longer if you're not being paid exactly an industry standard and that affects your uh, ability to meet your physical needs. Yeah. If lots of your salary is going back. So that shoots a hole in one of the other capabilities yeah. measures. But Yeah. All right, let's look at the students then. Yeah. Again, 2015. It's not unusual, uh, by the way, to have uh, such a time lag. Well, you have to in order to get all the data. To get all the data together. Mm-hmm. This one is the um, Program for International Study Assessment, PISA. Uh, it ranks students by country. And 15-year-olds in 2015 placed 38th out of 71 countries in math and 24 out of the 71 in science. Mm. Um, Among the 35 members of the Organization for Economic Development and Cooperation and Development, we ranked 30th in math and 19th in science. So the OECD uh, are more select group and yeah. generally wealthier countries. Sure. Which we would be on par with as far as like right. our societal uh You would expect yeah, things breakdowns. Like the right uh, sort of um you know edu- same kind of money right towards education or exactly. healthcare and all like so that it should be Making evenly Making a comparison yeah. between the United States and Japan sure. because of econo- economic capabilities is a lot different right. than the US and Bangladesh. Mhm. Right. That's terrible. By the way, those numbers are terrible. They really are. They're I mean, not impressive at all. Shocking, really. Yes. And there's another one that measure has been going on since 1995. We did a little better. It measures um, fourth and eighth graders, a lot of people have probably heard that. Mm-hmm. The, the Common Core, the No Child Left Behind yeah. measure a certain time. Well, it matches this international standard. Um, but these are for younger people. Ten countries out of 48 had statistically higher average fourth grade math scores than the U.S. Seven higher science scores on average. Well, I mean, that's yeah. still within the top ten. Well, this statistically higher, which means the measurement says there's a cluster of four of them in here mm. that based on our measurement technique, we can't distinguish between them. Right. So we'll just put them all together. Sure. So it could be up or down, up or from, down there. from there. So um, either kids are getting worse as they get older mm. or the lower educational levels are improving because these were both in 2015. Right. But at any rate, neither one of them has us running out in the streets shouting, we're number one. Right. Or number two. Mm-hmm. Or number three. Although estimates suggest that we are the wealthiest country in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people would argue, no, it's China now. Right. But we would definitely be up there. We would be higher than 38th. Yes. Or even 10th. Agreed. So yeah. If we look at it from that perspective, we might say we're not doing quite the job that we could Mm -hmm. in terms of providing funding, which translates into providing opportunities and skill sets. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of, uh, I shouldn't say a lot of people, but I would say that if you don't invest in the futures of your country, right. Then, how do you expect it to be can maintain its success? Exactly. Because, you know, right now it's sort of like we're coasting a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
because we really haven't had anything successful happen as far as like a baby boom where people come right. back and the economy is booming and people are having families and they're, you know, they're right. contributing to society in a way that's, you yeah. know, keeping the population alive and everything else. And right. now it's like people are not doing this. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's also a reflection of our priorities mm. um, because Mr. Trump is president right now and the, a war, a wall on the southern border is very important. Numbers have been thrown around like crazy. $5.7 billion is uh, sticking in the media these mm-hmm. days. More informed estimates suggest it's more like 13 to $33 billion. Yeah. But we'll go with the lower one. Of We'll even round off that uh, $0.7 billion because it's only $700 million. Who mean, cares about right. that? It's just dropping. $5 billion. Dollars. You know what you could do with that? Mm. You could fund the Department of Education for the rest of the decade and have money left over. Yep. You could provide free college education every student for I think it was seven years. Yeah. So priorities. Yeah. Resources, resource distribution reflect priorities. Mm-hmm. And it indicates perhaps that education is not our top priority. Well, or I would, close yeah, to it. Close to it. I mean I would say that just right. just by the numbers that we just talked about. Exactly. Yeah. So this is my speculation. You know what happens as a result of this? Here are the consequences mm-hmm. that educators see and are reporting and I can verify that I'm seeing similar things. Yeah. Um, The American population starts to exhibit poor decision-making skills. Um, They display a lack of critical assessment skills, Mm -hmm. a lack of knowledge base. One of my favorite testimonies to lack of knowledge base is when they have these videos on YouTube. You can look them up where they have people go to college campuses and ask uh, students Mm-hmm. Uh, simple questions like, um, who's the vice president of the United States? Right. Who fought in the Civil War? <laughs> Who, simple things that you would think would be obvious. Yeah. And, of course, they're just culling out the answers for making a funny video. Sure. And they're like, I don't know. When was the Civil War? I don't know. Who was in it? I think it was the French. Mm. Okay, even if they're just picking out one or two. Right. Nobody should be saying the French. <laughs> no, no. And I would suspect that, I would suggest as a political scientist, everybody should know who the vice president of the United States is. I agree. And the speaker of the house. Right. You should know the line of succession. Exactly. <laughs> um, and here's something that anyone can relate to. One of the consequences of this lack of emphasis on education, inability to tell the difference between facts and opinions. Mm. You can see that all over social media. Social oh, media goodness. has provided a wonderful opportunity for people, a platform that was missing for generations. <laughs> and it also provides the opportunity for people to just blather on. Yeah, Facts I mean, just yell opinions. into the abyss. Really. Exactly. Um, people display a, distact, a distinct lack of comfort with information that does not agree with their own perspective. And this results in a lack of willingness to explore alternatives, make compromises uh, difficult, if not impossible, to do. Yeah. So effectively, you could wrap this all up and use the term lack of intellectual curiosity. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. One of my favorite things to do is to talk to somebody that has a differencing opinion if, in fact, the conversation does not... Uh, go into a screaming match. Exactly. Well, um, go on Facebook or Twitter. Yeah. Mention the border wall. Ugh. Yeah, no, and see it's what awful. Happens. I mean, this is just heuristic evidence, but yeah. I'm sure each one of us has been in a situation where we have uh, witnessed on social media uh, an exchange between people with differing perspectives mm. that rapidly degenerates into a shouting match. Yes. Name calling. Mm-hmm. People walking away. There's no engagement here. Well, this is a default. And it's sort of like if you could have two people that can engage in a conversation and have totally different points of view, that's how right. common ground gets made. And it's sort of like you have to be willing to say, I agree to disagree. Okay. That's a good one. Right. Or you can say, that's an interesting perspective. I've never thought about it that way. Right. But you have to be willing to think. Well, and one of the other things that we seem to be overlooking in our society is 
the use of evidence in argumentation. Mm. There is a big difference between one's opinion and facts. Right. And I am not a purist when it comes to facts. I know that facts are all based on observation and therefore mm. suspect to subject to bias and sure. take them with a grain of salt. But that doesn't mean that everything you disagree with is fake. Right, exactly. That, That's the default argument. Yes. If that, I don't agree with it, therefore it doesn't exist. Right. Mm. That, in my opinion, demonstrates a, a, a laziness when it comes to intellectual yeah. inquiry, when it yeah. comes to thinking. Do you think it's... Um, do you think people are scared to engage because then it might reveal that they are not as educated as they once previously maybe perceived themselves to be? That could very well be. And in fact, um, studies have demonstrated that people will... If you ask people um, a question, mm. they assume that they should know the answer. And yeah. therefore, because they don't want to seem ignorant... They will make up an answer. And I will link it back again to educational training. Sure. The ability to admit that you don't know. I saw a post on social media earlier this week that uh, a student said one of the best comments he had ever gotten from a teacher was, I don't know. I'll have to look that up and get back to you. That was the, I heard that all the time. Yeah. It's like modeling appropriate behavior yeah oh no let me check that out That's... you know i had i mean when i i taught for a brief period of time i you know moonlighted for five years and then retired but <laughs> Smart um, move. thank you um but i did when i would teach and somebody would ask me a question well is that possible i would say you know i don't know i'd have to i'll do some research and i'll certainly let you know right and but i would do that all the time i don't pretend to know that i have all the answers right and nor should you put that much anxiety or that that's a level of perfection on yourself right. because that yeah. in itself is stressful, that, you know? That is another phenomenon that um, people are reporting, seeing more, diagnosing more and more is that this, uh, this fear of being imperfect Yeah. Um, in things that are, I mean, somewhat it seemingly to a casual observer Irrelevant. Yeah. Less important. But somehow they take on critical importance to the individual, and that's sure. all that really matters, how they fit into your psychology, mm. how important it is or is not. Right. And there's... I, I'm still going to go back to education. Yeah. Train people that not knowing is okay, asking questions is okay, mm -hmm. getting the wrong answer is okay. Well, there's no such thing as a stupid question either. Right. Because I hate that when they go... This might be a stupid question. No, it's a question. You're being right. inquisitive. That's how you learn. Exactly. Yeah. And then if we encourage this sort of behavior, possibly Hopefully. stick with you. Yeah. But, you know, we've been focusing on young people here, but unfortunately, <laughs> it's not just those damn whippersnappers out there. <laughs> I saw an interesting study, a write-up of a study from uh, New York University that said in the last election, 2016... People over 65 and ultra-conservatives shared about seven times more fake information masquerading as news on the social media site than younger adults, moderates, or super-liberals. Mm. Okay. So um, we have Do this you, phenomenon with the conservative drift. Yeah. But I would argue that in the terms of our conversation today, this reflects that our... Lack of emphasis on education is more deeply rooted yeah. than people tend to suggest. So it's not just the young generation. Right. It's, it's not it's the millennial, a... Gen X. Mm. Um, these are baby boomers. Mm -hmm. And it would be a whole nother conversation to sort of delve into why. Right. But this type of lack of inquiry... I mean, do you think it's just, I mean, they don't, they can't make, obviously they can't make an informed decision. They're on social media to begin with that. I mean, Facebook has been taken over by boomers essentially. Um, so, which is fine, but I think it's a lack of understanding of the technology and the lack of being able to understand that the onion is not a real thing. You know what I mean? True. Or there's a bunch of but, different onion, like news sources uh -huh. that are not real. But all you have to do is, is take a another click step. or two. Yeah. 
and you find that out. I was observing a conversation, a friend, and someone was up in arms about something, what is largely irrelevant, until the original author, I don't know, got back from making his coffee and followed the feed again and said, such and such a source is a satirical paper. Yes. Oh, my bad. Never mind. Right. See, but that's the thing. It's like, so they just didn't take that, those particular mm-hmm. people that were posting um, right. unfactual things. They just don't, they're just doing it blindly, almost like, uh-huh. let me read the, the gotcha headline and right. that, that ticks all the boxes of what I agree with. So I'm yes. going to send it out. Right. And, uh, you know, clickbait headlines yeah. are great because yeah. no one even clicks them anymore. No. It's like, okay. This is exactly what I need mm-hmm. right now. Right. So I would argue that the um, lack of emphasis on education permeates our society. Mm-hmm. And at the very least, the consequences permeate our society. Yeah. Let me show you um, what I think is a symptom of this. Okay. That is not age range specific. Okay. Um, the media. Mm. The media seems to feel the need to provide both sides of the story. Apparently, because we cannot perform basic evaluation process by ourselves. So they make, most times in my opinion, what appears to be a lame effort to do us do it for us. Mm. Often leading to the use of false equivalencies. Uh, I'm going to throw a hot grenade out here. Um, climate change and whether humans are actually involved with it in a significant fashion Mm. or not, news sources will get one scientist, media outlet, publication that says humans are significant contributors. Yes. Despite the fact that 90% of the scientific community agrees with that. And more and more of the public is agreeing with that as well. But then they'll get one who does not agree with it. Climate change, de- climate denier, right. climate change denier. That yeah. we're not doing it. Okay, there's a false equivalency. Mm-hmm. Putting them both on the stadium, like on that stadium, sorry, that would be a really good venue. That would be, yeah. At a podium. Yeah. And saying, opinion A, opinion B, as if, first of all, they're just opinions. Right. There's no evidence behind it. But opinion A has evidence. Right. And opinion B has opinions. And secondly... Opinion A has 98 people standing behind it. Mm-hmm. Opinion B is standing alone. Right. And that doesn't come through. So that's what, if you ever hear the term false equivalencies, sure. that's the way I'm using it today. And one, one commenter did this great, made up this great uh, uh, expression, which I'm going to use from now on out, both sidism. That's great. We have to have both sides of the story. You know, okay. I I think that that's a, appropriate if it's like a he said she said situation. Right. That's that's good. But like if it's no, this is a, this report came out. We're talking to this person. Right. That's it. If you want to then go take the extra steps to figure out what the the counterbalance is to that, sure. then you can go and you're if you're educated enough, right? You can go and do that. But, but you know, it's just even if we go back to the he said she said mm-hmm. type of scenario, the only time both sides of the story are equivalent yeah. as if there's no factual uh, factual evidence or observations to back up a side of the story. Right. If there's nothing else, then it's perfectly legitimate to consider both sides. And sure. then really, you're just expressing an opinion. Who do you believe? Right. Who do you want to believe? Mm-hmm. There's nothing we can do about that. But to put both sides of the story up there as if they are equivalent without any discussion or investigation about what we will just loosely call evidence. Sure. That is both-sidedism. Mm. And my favorite example, I have to use this because I have to keep repeating this, sp- spread the shame. <laughs> the Associated Press tweeted, a, uh, fact, uh, tweeted about a fact check for some article on January 8, 2019. You can look it up. And it said, Democrats put the blame on the shutdown on Trump, but it takes two to tango. That's why I love this. It's two yeah, to tango. Uh-huh. Democrats put the blame on the shut- for the shutdown on Trump, but it takes two to tango. Trump's demand for $5.7 billion for his border wall is one reason for the budget impasse. 
The Democrats' refusal to approve the money is another. No. That's a false equivalency. Yeah, absolutely. That's both sidedism. Uh huh. And that's the now AP came back and they said, well, the tweet was inelegant. The actual fact check article itself was uh, more appropriate. This was just poorly phrased. Like, well, then don't phrase it. You're the Associated Press. Figure it out. Exactly. Um, Another piece of evidence I would suggest that the media believes we are poorly educated. Uh, The need to recap everything. Mm. And it's constant. If you read exactly anything, you listen to any clip on a news program, on a blog, someone is going to tell you what you just listened to and what it meant. Or like live tweeting is another thing that's really popular. Live tweeting as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. As if you don't, they do not believe that you have the capabilities and maybe they are correct. And Mm -hmm. maybe that's the problem. Yeah. But that certainly seems to suggest that there's a belief that we do not have the capabilities to comprehend, mm. understand, interpret, and or evaluate for ourselves. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this before I turned the mics on, but I am an NPR listener. Not that that should be surprising, but um, <laughs> I find, I found over the past couple of years that it's not as elevated as it has been in the past because I think that they're, they're compensating for those particular types of people that might just be tuning in, you know, sporadically. Are Uh, are they reflecting their audience? Are they creating an audience? I think that they're trying to create an audience because like you said, it's a, it is a uh, money maker, but I do find that um, you, you have a if you are educated and you are trying to get to a higher standard of education uh either at a college level or you're just trying to do it on your own whether it's reading or you know getting yourself educate absolutely you uh want to be challenged with your thoughts and perspectives on things and if you don't feel like you're getting that you're going to seek it out from someplace else and you know, as far as the news organizations are, they should be, you know, yeah, you're tr- there to make money, but you also need to, like, do your job really well so exactly. that people aren't, like, um, wanting to. Are you presenting information or are you chewing it up for us? Right. And if you're doing this, the latter, you're really providing information, uh, opinion, in the guise of information. Yeah. I mean, that's, again, a broad topic. And people are more than welcome to cuss me out on social media over this because no. I'm oversimplifying a really, really complex subject. But yeah. the idea that you, these broad news organizations, feel the need to tell me what I just watched okay, indicates their belief that I'm not capable, which to me is an indictment of our educational system, yeah. which brings me to the idea of are we really doing a good job of creating the good society, mm. uh, an informed public capable of making informed decisions? I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure at all. Let me throw one last idea out here for you. Okay. And then, you know, just sort of lob this and then run away. Yeah, I'll take it. The last thing I'd like to introduce tonight is, uh, or today, whatever you're listening to this, sure. is the idea of um, social trust mm. uh, and how it relates to, in our case, democracy and education. Social trust is really a very simple concept that uh, it, it indicates a willingness to trust or have faith in the integrity of those outside your immediate group. However you define your immediate group, it could be your family, could be your neighborhood, your political party, your ethnicity, mm-hmm. your religion, your anything you want. That's how you define yourself as a member, first and foremost, of this group. Right. Uh, we've all heard of the idea of bias bubbles. Mm-hmm. That's our group. That's what we stick to. Anything outside of that, no, not right. so much. Like, I like blueberries. I don't like strawberries. Right. 
So if you like strawberries, I can't be friends with you. Exactly. The yeah. strawberry people are crazy. Yes. No discussion at all. Both are, well, we're, we both are berries, but we... Okay, so if we get into the berry family, yeah. then we're okay. Then we're okay. okay. But if you're going to break it down even further, yeah. then... Don't be bringing no cantaloupe into this, okay? Right, exactly. Yeah. Watermelon, forget right. it. So high levels of social trust in the community indicate you are more willing to trust other groups. Mm-hmm. So it leads to a less antagonistic approach to those with whom you do not agree. Yeah. High levels of social trust also lead to a cultural attitude that tends to promote a community identity, yeah. shared responsibility. So, for example, uh, countries that measure high in social trust are often um, the Northern Europeans. Yes. They also score really high on educational attainment. Mm-hmm. Because they support higher education. They support higher edu- education all the way through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have higher taxes. Mm-hmm. And studies, opinion polls say, well, yeah. Overwhelmingly, but I don't have to- yeah, people are like, yeah, yeah, we pay more. Yeah, but, we pay more, but I get edu- free education. Right. Um, parental leave, parental uh-huh. leave for, right. for up to a year. Um, Health care. Yes. So I mean, there's there's like Job, yes, child child care, job replacement training, yeah, yeah, exactly all the right. things that mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah, of course I pay for that, but you don't use that; those people do. Mm-hmm. And again, the response seems to be like, yeah, so, and I could need it if I needed it. It's there for me, and that's an indication of high social trust. Yeah. So there is seems to be a link, and I'm not saying anything about causality, which direction this runs. It could just mm-hmm. be correlation. They both appear together for other reasons. Right. But societies where social trust scores are higher tend to invest more in education, tend to seemingly take more of the capabilities approach yeah. to creating the good society for everybody their people. Everybody is capable. Right. Everybody has the potential. Has the potential mm-hmm. to develop. Yeah. And then everybody gets to define that differently individually and culturally. Yeah. And that, I just thought I'd throw that out there to give people know, something think to think about. That's something to think about. And, and I think that that's a great way to 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 move this to an end end point of the right. conversation because it really comes back down to as a society what what our expectations are of our government yes and what our expectations are of ourselves within right. that realm so it's it's whether it's participating at just voting very minimal level just right. checking a box exactly. or running for an office uh-huh. or you know community organizing or whatever the case may be but you have to kind of think about yourself contributing to right. be being an active participant in some regard and who else can participate as well it's yeah. a big question yeah one of the things we're seeing in the united states is increasing evidence of at least a rhetorical divide mm. between groups of people uh, whether that is uh inflamed or conflamed by the media as a selling point that's a whole nother conversation yeah or whether it's an accurate picture of what's going on. Um, Social trust, higher educational levels, meaning better education. You don't have to get a PhD. No. But you get out of high school, you think, you read, you write, you can evaluate information. Yeah. And today, you know how to use the internet to look up credible sources. Absolutely. That provides an avenue for conversations that, in my opinion, will promote a better functioning political system in the United States. I 100% agree with you. And if you're concerned that you might not know how to distinguish between a reputable and non-reputable news source, go to your library and ask a librarian. Right. Because they will be able to help you. They really Determine can. a source is good or, or you know legit right. or not i yeah. mean that you that's a public service right so use it and uh professional librarians are trained to do that yeah. that's the library stuff library sciences one of the key things they study is evaluation how to vet information yeah in terms of critiquing and judging it 
not in terms of its merits, blah, 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 as a literary work, but in terms of uh, its merits as an information source. Right. What we're interested in tonight. Absolutely. So So go to the library. Absolutely. Renew that card. And they have internet at the library in many places, too, so they can help you with those sources as well. Absolutely. Well, Johnny O., it's a pleasure as always. Well, thank you so much for having me again. I'm always delighted when I have the opportunity to come talk to you. Yeah, well, the feeling is mutual, and I look forward to sitting across from you again. Absolutely. We'll start thinking of what the next topic is, and yeah. maybe once the uh, spring actually rolls around here in <laughs> balmy Allegheny County, uh-huh. Maryland, yeah. we will come up with another hot topic. There you go. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you.